This is Geek Gab with your host, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab, episode 117, American Made and Adaptation Awesomeness. Welcome to the show, folks. We have just another show chock full of awesome, 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 awesomeness. But before we get to that, before we start the awesome stuff, we're going to allow just a, a, a bit of slightly less awesome stuff. Now, this is not unawesome, mind you. This is slightly less awesome. So we're going to allow a bit of slightly less awesome stuff as my fellow hosts will say hi to you, our unusually intelligent and attractive audience members. Hey, everybody. You know what? I consider talking to myself the highlight of everybody else's day, so I don't know what you're talking about. This is about as awesome as it gets. Do you concur, Mr. Niemeyer? Yeah, sure. Uh, he must be in a, 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 a sudden coughing check. See, this is, the, this is how dedicated we, your hosts, are to you, our fans. Uh, fully two-thirds of the hosting staff of the show today is ill, and yet we are here to entertain and enlighten you. How awesome is that? You see, that's three layers of awesome already, and we're not even just a couple minutes into the show. So, And you know the jokes are good when they, they make your buddy mute the mic in a coughing fit. <laughs> we, well, I didn't. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, because I was talking. I must have, yeah, I didn't have it muted, so that, that's odd. But no, I, I concur. Okay. So, <laughs> American Made is the new Tom Cruise film. And every single trailer in the movie itself trumpets loudly that this movie is based on a true story. It sells the fact, as many Hollywood movies do, it sells the fact that you, the audience, uh, are going to get exactly what the past was, perhaps slightly altered, slightly altered, in order to make the events fall more easily into the Hollywood three-act structure. Now... The question is, in this case, as in all other cases, how closely does American Made hue to actual historical events? Well, I am going to illustrate exactly how closely American Made hues to historical events with the lyrics of a song, if you'll permit me to recite the lyrics of a song, it will illustrate perfectly how closely this movie hues to reality. What would Brian Boitano do if he was here right now? He'd make a plan and follow through. That's what Brian Boitano would do. When Brian Boitano was in the Olympics skating for the gold, he did two South Chows and triple Lutz while wearing a blindfold. When Brian Boitano was in the Alps fighting grizzly bears, he used his magical fire breath and saved the maiden's fair. 
What would Brian Boitano do? When Brian Boitano traveled through time to the year 3010, he fought the evil robot king and saved the human race again. And when Brian Boitano built the pyramids, he beat up Kublai Khan because Brian Boitano doesn't take crap from anybody. So that stirring, near factual documentary of Brian Boitano's life is exactly as reliable and accurate a depiction of what he has done as American-made. Does that shock you guys? Not in the slightest. I mean, once I think I feel like once you learn about what artistic license is, why would you ever go back to anything else? So you've got to understand that the purpose of this movie is not to tell an entertaining story. The purpose of this movie is not to inform you about historical events or even the essence of historical events through dramatic uh, realization. The purpose of this movie is to settle a grudge. Because one of the two people involved in this movie, their father was involved in Iran-Contra the Iran-Contra scandal against President Ronald Reagan. Now, many of you listening to the show aren't going to know what the heck that's, I'm talking about. That's okay. In 1986, a big scandal broke out, and the Democrats who ran Congress were really, really upset against President Ronald Reagan, who was a Republican, and tried to bring down his presidency the way they had brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon. And in the course of that, they made a number of false claims about Ronald Reagan. Now, they got demolished in the court of public opinion through some very uh, easily overlooked optics. And it, it just looked really bad. And the people supported Reagan and the Democrats got destroyed in the court of public opinion. And yet this dragged on. They had almost, you know, 24-hour news coverage and then CNN, which is a brand new network. This is where they made their bones. And they had live broadcasts on CNN of the testimony of Colonel Oliver North almost all day. So, the father of either the director or the writer, I, I can't remember which, you'll have to uh, excuse me, was involved in Iran-Contra on the Democrat side and got demolished along with the rest of the Democrats. So he has a grudge. He's pissed off. And he selected this movie to be a vehicle for character assassination of Ronald Reagan, Oliver North, and the Reagan administration in general. So when you're watching American Made, you have to be absolutely 100% aware that what you're watching is not drama, it is not history, it is in point of fact propaganda. It is a smear job. It is intended to destroy the reputation of Ronald Reagan. Despite this, there are several really entertaining things in the movie, and the movie could have been a great and entertaining movie if they had gotten off their high horse and stopped worrying about taking direct shots at Ronald Reagan and Oliver North and just worried about making a fun and interesting and exciting movie. You could have done some really cool things, especially with the ending, and made it a really good, really fun movie. Just instead of personalizing it and taking all the time and wasting all the time to throw in clips of Ronald Reagan and to make fun of him and things like that, you could have just made a movie where the it is government incompetence or a general 
the CIA as an organization or whomever were kind of the, the gullible dupes of the main character. And you could have made a great movie without making it personal. It would have taken less, would have given more time for the plot to develop and would have made, allowed you to make a great ending for the movie instead of the crappy ending we got. Now I'm going to warn you, we are going to have spoilers about things that happen in the movie and tough. Uh, but not at this very second. I will let you know when we get into spoiler territory. If Have uh, have you guys seen the trailers for this? No. Are you kidding? It, I think they play it at least twice before every movie I've seen in the past month. I can't not see this trailer. You know so, what? I could probably recite it. <laughs> Tom Cruise plays a pilot. He plays a TWA pilot. Specifically, he plays a man who is so good at piloting, at least in the movie, he's the youngest pilot in TWA history. And yet, being a pilot, making a lot of money as a pilot, having a super hot wife in a nice town with a good, loving family who's fairly prosperous isn't enough for him. He's bored with his life. And he is approached. He is engaged in smuggling Cuban cigars to the Cubano community in Miami, for which he gets paid even more money than his already vast salary as a TWA airline pilot. He gets approached at one point by Donald Gleason, who you may remember is one of the Weasleys from the Harry Potter movies as the leader of the First Order in the you know new Star Trek The Force Awakens. Uh, and uh, he was also in The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, grueling movie about getting you know torn up by a bear, getting sexually molested by a bear. So Donald Gleason is apparently trying to take over the slot of guy who gets cast in everything. Um, he is a great actor, by the way. I'm not trying to slight him or his performance in this movie. His performance in this movie is highly entertaining, and uh, it really it really is what kind of puts the movie over the top, because Tom Cruise is entertaining. He does Tom Cruise, the typical Tom Cruise thing. If you've seen a Tom Cruise movie, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but and, and that is really entertaining. He, Tom Cruise does a great job in this movie. Donald Grayson does a great job in this movie, and they're both the two main characters for the majority of it, and it's entertaining. So... Donald Gleason approaches him and says, I know you've been smuggling stuff, and, uh, you know, ominous hints, ominous hints, I'm from the government. And the guy says, oh, uh, thinking he's from the FBI, a couple of more uh, comments are dropped. He says, oh, you're in the CIA. And the guy says, well, don't shout it out loud. They go and they give Tom Cruise a pilot. They say, you have access to the fastest twin-engine plane on the planet, and what we want you to do is fly down to South America, bring stuff back, on a, you know, a typical cargo run. And at the same time, we want you to make treetop level flights over communist guerrilla encampments. Because at this time in history, the Cold War was going on and the Soviet Union was attempting to suborn governments all over the planet. So Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, all of these uh, countries had sizable communist guerrilla movements 
who were armed with very heavy weapons and were fighting the government. And in Nicaragua, and this becomes important to the movie later, they actually succeeded. The Sandinistas, the communist uh, revolution in Nicaragua, actually succeeded in taking over the country and imposing a communist dictatorship on the country. So they want him to fly this uh, prop engine aircraft over these communist camps, collect photographs of them, and then he'll get paid you know, money for it. He decides not to do it because his wife gets upset and says, you're quitting TWA, you can't quit TWA. They've got great health insurance, you make a lot of money, yada, yada, yada. And uh, we continue watching his character as he's going through the motions of doing this boring job. And finally, at one point, he gets so fed up, he's so bored. He's so filled with existential angst and ennui about his job and career. He walks right the hell off a TWA flight as it's sitting on the runway and preparing to take off to go to some other city. He just walks out the door and walks away from TWA forever. Now, this never happened. In real life, to the character that this is based on, this dramatic walking away movement never happened. It is completely, totally, utterly made up by the director and made up by the screenwriter. In fact, the word I got uh, from a story uh, written on N uh, NRO, National Review Online, is that people who are involved with the production said whenever they needed something else to happen in the movie, the director and the screenwriter would just get together and say, okay, what would be cool? What would we need to happen? What would be interesting? Which is fine for making a dramatic movie, for making a movie that is supposed to indict an entire presidency for its supposed sins that is not acceptable. That is just absolute garbage. So he goes off and starts doing this stuff, and it turns out that he's not making much money, and his family's getting kind of pinched. So he goes to the CIA and says, I need to make some more money. The CIA says, no. And this is where what could have been a great movie and what the movie actually did starts to diverge. The movie, what it actually did is start claiming that uh, he running drugs for the Medellin cartel, that no one from the Medellin cocaine cartel from Colombia had been successfully uh, able to get cocaine into the country, and that during the entire 80s, up to 1986, that his, uh, he eventually expands his fleet to five airplanes, that his airplanes are the sole source of all the Colombian cocaine in all of America. And that in point of fact, the Contra rebels, who were incompetent people who didn't even want to be rebels, who just wanted to hang around the jungle for some reason, that they were deeply, intimately, personally involved with this cocaine smuggling. Now, it's a lie that the Contras did not want to be rebels. They were very dedicated freedom fighters. They weren't very trained or professional in the beginning, but the U.S. helped with that, and the U.S. gave them some uh, sub rosa underneath the table without the approval of Congress, gave them some aid, and they eventually won. They eventually overthrew the Sandinistas. The fact that the Contras won, the fact that they overthrew the Sandinistas is never mentioned in the movie because it would completely undercut the narrative that the movie's trying to establish, that the Contras were incompetent, 
that the U.S. government was incompetent, that Colonel Oliver North was incompetent, and then Ronald Reagan was incompetent. And presenting the fact that the uh, Contras won their guerrilla war would completely undercut that narrative. But I assure you they did. Also, the Contras were never involved in smuggling drugs in the Medellin cartel, but the Sandinistas, the communist government of the country, were. Noriega and his Sandinistas were. And so you have a complete inverse of what actually happened presented as absolute fact. Uh, and also uh, he gets involved with, at that point, Colonel Noriega of Panama and is uh, you know, instrumental in helping him become a general and eventually take over running the country. So that's the narrative of the movie. Where it goes off the beam is in the end of the movie, and this is a spoiler. I'm going to give away the ending of this movie. At the end of the movie, the character, Tom Cruise's character, is abandoned by the CIA. He's abandoned by the FBI. He's abandoned by the DEA, even after helping catch the Sandinistas uh, in the act with photographs of their cocaine smuggling. And he is exposed in such a way that hitmen are coming after him, and they catch up to him, and they kill him. This movie is intended to be a spiritual successor to Goodfellas, to that masterpiece of mob movies where you have uh, Mr. Hill talking about how he became integral to the mob, how he became a cocaine smuggler, and how he eventually got caught by the police and had to turn state's evidence and went into witness protection. It absolutely fails, as it did Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, which is also intended to be another uh, Goodfellas-esque movie. It absolutely fails on all of that, uh, on all of that level. Um, so, if having the character shot in the head in the parking lot of a Salvation Army at night in Arkansas isn't how the movie should have ended, because it isn't. That isn't the story you're telling. The story you're telling with this character is almost a Robin Hood tale. He's a dashing, very, very charming man who gets in over his head and makes the FBI fools, makes the DEA fools, makes the CIA fools, makes the government fools, and then has the cartel turn against him. He is a charming rogue. Now, I'm not justifying the character's morality. I'm not saying he's a good and moral and decent person. But if what you want to do is have a morality tale where the wages of sin are made evident in his death, you need to do it a different way because the movie didn't lead up to that at all. That, again, would be a completely different movie and you'd need to do better at that. They didn't set that up. So I would choose to go with him as a dashing rogue, with him as someone who the CIA uh, got him into running this business, but he couldn't support his family to the degree he wanted and decided when offered to start smuggling cocaine, and everything got out of hand from there. Everything begins uh, spiraling out of control. Everything begins one event leading to another, leading to another. He's kind of riding the tiger, as it were. And 
the end of the movie is him only barely escaping, only barely escaping that fate of a hitman. So my thought is, rather than having be, him be completely incompetent, instead of having these barrels of cash around, the government come, throws him to the wolves, and the FBI, DEA, and ATF all raid his place. Rather than that happening, my suggestion would be that he manages to barely scrape together enough uh, juice to buy a plane. He does buy a C-130. Loads that C-130 with the rest of the guns so he can fly him out of the country to the Contra so they won't be on his property. Loads that C-130 with the drugs so he can drop them off to the smugglers so they won't be caught with that. And unbeknownst to the audience, loads the C-130 with all of the cash all of the suitcases full of cash that have been sitting around the house, sitting around his yard, buried in his yard. At one point, he goes to dig a hole in the yard to bury another satchel of cash and actually digs up a different satchel of cash that he had already buried. Unbeknownst to the audience, he flies all of that to the Cayman Islands, opens up a bank account, deposits all the cash in an offshore account, a secret account, drops the guns off, drops the cocaine off. We think he's going to get hammered because he's still got all this cash. And yet when he gets arrested, none of it's there. They find nothing, no evidence that he's done anything wrong. The government uses him as a mole. He goes and catches the Sandinistas. And then they send hitmen after him. He fakes his own death. The government thinks he's dead. The Sandinistas, or excuse me, the uh, Medellin cartel sends hitmen after him. The Medellin cartel thinks he's dead. And we find out in a kind of a coda when we think he's been shot that what actually happened is him, his wife, and their kids got on a boat, went to the Cayman Islands, got briefcase full of bearer bonds, which are treated like cash at any financial institution on the planet, and left. And he finally escaped to live a life in Bora Bora or whatever uh, tropical paradise he did, and he managed to, in the course of the movie, outwit the FBI, outwit the CIA, outwit the government, outwit the Sandinistas, outwit Noriega, and outwit the cartel. That's how a dashing rogue movie should end. How it ended uh, is boring and depressing. It was only uh, a little spot on the road to lecturing us about how evil Ronald Reagan was. So... Any comments before we jump track? Well, let's get on to Galaxy's Edge. Okay. <laughs> um, boy, but let me ask before we go to Galaxy's Edge. Um, you understand the difference between like a Wages of Sin story and a dashing rogue outwits everybody and gets the money story. Because uh, Ocean's Eleven is a dashing rogue outwits everybody and gets the money story. Goodfellows is a Wages of Sin story. Right. But uh, so my, my question is, do you, whichever one would be better, I'm not sure. But do you see why replumbing the end of the story like that would make it fit better with the dashing rogue story than him getting shot in a parking lot of a Salvation Army? And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because there are two ways that a story can end classically, either in tragedy right, or, or comedy in the original meaning of the word, which isn't necessarily, you know, a funny ha-ha story, but 
when you got a story with a central protagonist, he needs to have a goal, right? He needs a motive. He needs to strive to achieve that goal and overcome obstacles along the way, and then either claim victory or defeat at the end. And if he succeeds, it's a comedy. If he fails, it's a tragedy. So it sounds like they built up this movie as you know a dashing rogue story, which would fall into the comedy category. Again, not meaning funny, just meaning you know happy ending from the hero's point of view. And then they, they pull the rug out from under you, pull a 180, and it turns into a tragedy, which is totally dissonant. Yeah. So if they hadn't been as interested as they were in attacking Reagan, it could have been a really, really good movie. It could have been a fun and enjoyable movie. Uh, it wouldn't have been personally offensive to me. I don't really talk about politics on the show, um, but I was uh, very young during the Ronald Reagan years, and I remember even the years before Ronald Reagan came, uh, became president and how depressing and grinding and humiliating it was uh, very often to be an American. I mean, you know, we had Iran, which is a little nowhere Middle Eastern country, kidnapped American citizens and, and humiliated them and held them hostage for four, 444 days. And we couldn't do anything about it. Um, and then Reagan came, and he did a lot of great stuff with the military. He did a lot of great stuff with the country. And uh, people who lived through that time, who know Reagan and respect him, love him. And so uh, I love the man. I think he was a great president, and I think it's personally offensive. It just it, it grated on me every time they made fun of Ronald Reagan. Because here's the thing. They talk about him as an actor and him doing Bedtime for Bongo, which is a silly comedy with a monkey. But at the same time, not only he wasn't just an actor who made movies, he wasn't just the Gipper in a football movie, he wasn't just a cowboy, he wasn't just a, a guy with a monkey. He became head of the Actors Guild during a time in which uh, the union was under you know severe attack. He became governor of California and uh, did very, very well in that position. And then he had a nationally syndicated talk show where for two decades he carefully honed and explained and promulgated his personal political beliefs and ideology at a time in which conservatism or American traditionalism was almost unknown as an ideological entity and carefully, exactingly, intelligently with evidence worked this out so that when he started running for president, he was well prepared both by the things he had gone through and by his own efforts to improve himself to be president. He wasn't a man wasn't just a man who made a movie with a monkey. And the fact that that's all the movie can show displays exactly how dishonest and disingenuous the people who made the movie are. Fitting Galaxy's Edge! <clears throat> Galaxy's Edge. What's, what's the space show that we're talking about? Um, oh, by the way, folks... Um, if you would allow me a mere moment to make a uh, transition here, this movie, American Made, is an example of adapting a pseudo-historical tale to the movie, uh, to a movie. And what we're going to talk about now is how Galaxy's Edge adapted the tropes of Star Wars to a completely new and different universe. Now, uh, I, it is known that I am a fan and a friend of Nick Cole. So I am a fan of his because I think he's, his writing is great. And I uh, 
with a few exceptions, I, I love mo uh, the books she's done. Um, there are a couple of exceptions, but they were his some of his earliest books. Uh, and I just think he does great work. And I have mentioned in two different times in my uh, Castalia House blog posts, uh, links to which you can find below this video, I have mentioned his, um, his books in a very positive light. Uh, and it's because I think they really are. Uh, Control-Alt-Revolt, Soda Pop Soldier, and now the Four Galaxies Edge books, I think they're great. Now, I'm going to read to you what I wrote in one of my posts because it's the perfect introduction to this segment. He wrote, by the way, he wrote Galaxy's Edge. The series is called Galaxy's Edge, and there's four books. He wrote it with another writer called Jason Onsbach. I've never read anything else he's done, um, but uh, both of them did a great job with this series. So here's, here's how I, what I said. Nick Cole and Jason Onspock's Galaxy's Edge series, which you should buy and read, is a clone of Star Wars. As soon as you read it, you're bathed in Star Wars tropes, the same tropes used in The Empire Strikes Back, Knights of the Old Republic, and the Han Solo Adventures trilogy by Brian Daly. It's Star Wars, it's Star Wars, it's Star Wars, all the live long day, it's Star Wars. Except it isn't. See, Colin Onspock did their adaptation right. They didn't just copy the tropes of Star Wars. They took the time to make the world their own. They made it more logical, more internally consistent, more plausible. They extrapolated from the setting and added a bunch of stuff all their own. They made the world their own. So that's the only thing I've said in public about this process of adapting Star Wars into Galaxy's Edge. And what I want to talk about today in the last half of the show is exactly what they did to achieve that. How did they make, take the tropes of Star Wars, so it's recognizably Star Wars. You're bathed in something that's familiar. Uh, and just as, just as for example, um, the uh, sort of Shannara series borrowed from Tolkien, a lot of epic fantasy borrows from Tolkien. Jason Onspock's and uh, Nick Cole's series does the same thing in borrowing from George Lucas and borrowing uh, from Star Wars. So what did they do to make it worthwhile? What did they do to make it their own? And there are three things I identified. And if you're a writer and you're out to adapt the tropes of a different setting and make it your own, not just copy it, not just write fan fiction of it, but actually make it your own. These are three things you can do. These are not the only three things you can do. It is not intended to be exhaustive, but these are three things you can do, and they're very effective. The three things, and we can talk about these one at a time. The three things that they did were they rationalized errors, they extrapolated from the world as it was, and they changed assumptions about the world. Um, I'm going to pause for a second and allow the professional author on the show to uh, agree or disagree uh, in, with the material thus far presented. Yeah, I, I largely agree. It's nothing that, at least uh, the scale that Jason and Nick are doing it, I haven't attempted anything like it yet. You know, I'd, I'd like to someday, but I mean, the proof is in the pudding. And every one of these books is going to number one in its category, like clockwork. As soon as it comes out, and they're putting out a book a month, so they're uh, they're scratching an itch in the fandom. What, what can I say? Um. So let's start with the top. 
rationalizing errors. In the original show, and you may be uh, working with a book, you may be working with a TV series, you may be working with a movie trilogy, they probably have said some things that don't make a lot of sense. Because the original people who made it may not have been science fiction uh, fans, or they may not have been that well um, familiar with physics or with whatever. So you've got things that make no sense. To rationalize an error is to explain how what they'd said, even though it seemed to be completely, egregiously, monumentally, unbelievably stupid, the kind of stupidity that would spontaneously cause intelligent and educated people who know what they were talking about to bleed out their ears, okay? That's the level of stupidity we're talking about. To explain how that level of stupidity wasn't actually stupid. And then to take those facts that you have used and to integrate them into the story in such a way that you build on them and so it becomes an internally consistent and coherent world. One example of such stupidity is the Kessel Run, where they say that uh, Hans Solo made the Kessel Run in so many parsecs. Parsecs is a measure of distance. I believe it's three light years not time, therefore making it in 12 parsecs makes no sense. That, that isn't fast or slow, it's just the distance. And you're saying it like it's going to be impressed people. I've heard a couple of different rationalizations of this error, one of which is that Han Solo was deliberately testing his passengers. He was throwing out some bad information to see how gullible they were, to see whether he could jack them for more money than otherwise. Because if they were gullible rubes, if they didn't know that parsec was distance, not time, he could charge them more money because they wouldn't know what the heck they're talking about. Obviously, they're knives just out of the desert, a, a stupid moisture farmer and a hermit, and they deserve to get soaked for whatever money he could. Or the other one I saw is that the Kessel Run is actually made through a system where there's a bunch of black holes or something, and the shorter the distance, uh, the more dangerous it is. So you can tell how skilled a pilot is by how short they managed to make the Kessel Run and uh, that, that's an extrapolation or an explanation uh, or a rationalization of an error in the original script. The script got it wrong, but you make it right by putting in information like this. Um, is, is there another name for that, like an official name? Um, Lampshading or hanging a lantern on it. Um, so Galaxy's Edge take several things that might be considered errors in the original um, Star Wars and rationalizes them and then makes them part of the movie. The biggest one, by the way, is the whole story of how the Republic fell. Why did this Republic, this Galactic Republic, fall to the Empire? Why did it become the Empire? How did it become the Empire? We were presented with a couple of hints in the original trilogy, and then when the prequels came out, it turned out to be the stupidest story that any of us had ever heard. It spontaneously caused our ears to bleed. That's how stupid it was. Nick Cole and Jason Onspot took that fact and wove out of it this brilliant background tale of a Republic 
who is slowly descending into corruption, where people are given uh, promotions based on their connections, their power and their politics, not on, and we're talking promotions in the military, not on how good or effective they are in the military. And we're given a background. Instead of making, for example, stormtroopers be these clones of one dude, the Legion, the Galactic Legion, is in point of fact the best, most highly trained soldiers in the entire galaxy. And they're absolutely, utterly loyal to the Republic, except the Republic hates them. The Republic leadership loathes them, is continually trying to screw them over. And so many of the people involved in the Legion actually leave the Legion and go and join the bad guys. And that happens, that plays out over the course of four books. So not only does it... Uh, rationalize the error, it integrates that rationalization into the story itself. Indeed, that's what the first four books are revolving around, is this incompetent republic, how it's falling apart, how it's screwing over its soldiers, how it's screwing over its citizens, how the poor and helpless are being victimized by the politically connected, and it makes that the entire point of the series thus far. And that's what makes the republic vulnerable to being taken over by outside forces. So that's number one, rationalizing error. Uh, number two is extrapolating the world. And that means um, there's a difference that I have noted between, for example, a role-playing world like Shadowrunner or the Forgotten Realms and a novel or a movie. When you present a movie, you present a very limited set of facts because you just don't have time to describe the entire world in detail. And even in a novel, and Robert Heinlein was excellent at this, he was absolutely skilled in giving you a teeny tiny percentage of the facts of describing what was going on in that world and making it, making everything else kind of implied and uh, explaining it via indirection or allowing your mind to build on those tantalizing clues and fill out the rest of the world. Well, extrapolating the world is exactly that process, only it's been made uh, explicit in this book. By the way, the, uh, the contrast there is to role-playing worlds like Shadow and the Forgotten Realms, where everything that is pertinent to the game has to be pretty detailed and has to be put in a book. If the game master isn't building the world himself, uh, the history of the world, the history of the kingdom they're in, the history of the city, uh, organizations that are present, how the magic system works, how it interacts with the world, what technological innovations are, are coming along, things like that. All those have to be detailed. You can't just hint at them. You can't just hand wave them. You can't just infer them, uh, at least in modern style role-playing settings. So you can't do that in in novels or movies because you just don't have time you just don't have space but you must do that in role-playing games and what nick cole and jason onspock did is they did a little bit more detailing a little bit more extrapolating a little bit more um growing on what was already there in the star wars the big bag of star wars tropes um and for example here's a question that you may not Think, may not have thought about before, what is the intelligence service uh, of the Republic like? What would their equivalent of either the CIA or the FBI be? 
How would they operate? What constraints would they operate under? How would they interface with things? They build an entire novel around the skullduggery of the shadow world of the CIA and uh, the FBI in this, and in point of fact, this is a great thing, and I hadn't realized until this very second, it's actually a parallel tale to American Made. It's actually a tale of a guy who gets dragged in way over his head in this world of the CIA and FBI and how he's trying to get out and what happens as a result of that. It's kind of uh, uh, parallels the American Made story in a, in a really interesting way. So they're extrapolating from this set of tropes to pieces of the world that we never saw in any of the, any of the movies the intelligence community and how they try and uh, act against a rebellion that's going on against the Republic. So the last thing is to change assumptions. That means to take some part of the world that is, it is established that it works a certain way and change the assumptions of it so that it actually works a different way, maybe a more sensible way, maybe a way that's less abusive of physics or just uh, is more interesting, whatever. Um, and they also do that in this series as well. Again, I'm going to pause and allow my co-hosts to uh, get some comments in while I sip some water. I've honestly... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, when you asked about the intelligence agencies of the Republic, I figured it was all just Boffin suicide missions. Yeah. <laughs> and Boffin's died to bring us this coffee. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, Brian, it, being an author and having done something similar to this with another project that you can't talk about yet, I don't think, um, do you have any either tips or uh, you know, better explanations of what I've presented so far? Nope. Okay. <laughs> I've done a perfect job. I have exactly laid them out, but any, anybody who was uh, trying to be a writer could understand them and apply those techniques. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why not. It's just the main thing, the, the main failing of Star Wars, in my opinion, was what you said, which was that Really, the background didn't make a lot of sense, especially in terms of, for want of a better word, the magic system. So that was one of the first things that I tackled in my project. And like, to be fully honest, full disclosure, I've only read like the first chapter of um, Galaxy's Edge Book Two. That's Galactic Outlaws, I believe. I think that's that's Book Two. So I haven't read the whole series yet, uh, but I think I got. I got the gist of it. So, I mean, does something like the Force even make an appearance in it? Yes, uh, but not until the last couple of books. And it's very, very mysterious. We don't know how it works right now. And there's only one person who has demonstrated Force-like abilities. Okay. Yeah, the Force is just one of the worst put-together magic systems in popular fiction, honestly. So I'm, I'm glad it seems like they're going to tackle that. Um... So, I had a whole list of examples of this uh, changing assumptions, but uh, the the rapid pace of events yesterday and today has has made me misplace them. I'll just give a different example. Um, suppose you were trying to make a clone of Star Trek, 
and you wanted to make it your own. You didn't want it to be exactly like Star Trek, so you were just ripping it off. One of the things you could do is change the assumptions behind the Federation and make it into an organization that was uh, completely different from what it is. And that might make this, the uh, setting more interesting. In point of fact, both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 did this. They changed how their alliances worked. Babylon 5 had an alliance between races, but it was very, very fraught. It, they were still separate countries. They weren't unified into this grand space UN. And wars actually began being fought between some of the races involved in this. And that's what the Babylon 5 station itself was, was a symbol of this peace treaty. It was a symbol of this pseudo-alliance. And over the course of the series, you got to see how the alliance changed, how some members moved closer together, how some were driven further apart. They changed the assumptions behind a galactic federation and used those changes to drive the drama of the show. And again, Deep Space Nine changed the assumptions behind Star Trek's future, where Gene Roddenberry set it out absolutely. One, crew members don't fight with each other. Two, uh, it is a good, happy, clean future. There's no hunger. There's no poverty. Earth is completely at peace. It's a utopia. Well, DS9 took that and completely spun it around its head. Earth was no longer a utopia, and they show several episodes where they lose that. And Starfleet has this really scummy, in, uh, intelligence agency that's pulling strings uh, behind the scenes. They show how that goes. So they completely changed the assumptions behind the Federation, and that's a large part of what made Deep Space Nine uh, appealing to people. The, some of the things that people really loved about it were how they changed those assumptions of what the Federation was to give it more dramatic opportunity because a world that is literally a utopia is boring. Nothing's going on. Nobody's fighting. Nobody's disagreeing. What are you going to do there? You go to the planet. It's a mall is what the planet is. You go there. You shop for souvenirs. You get the hell off and go someplace else in the galaxy where bad things happen because that's what stories are about. That's what adventures are about. Bad things happening to people who aren't you. And you change the assumptions of the Federation so that bad things could happen on Earth, so that we could see what was going on. And they even managed to wring some uh, pathos, to wring some poignancy around this place that may have been a utopia at one time, but is now no longer because of the threats of uh, the Dominion and the threats of the founders. And that was, again, it was very well done. It was necessary to do what they wanted to do, but it did involve changing core assumptions of Star Trek. And so... Uh, even though, again, I apologize for not having examples right to hand, that is the sort of thing that Cole and Anspach have done with Star Wars to produce Galaxy's Edge. And we pause for another break from our co-hosts. Outstanding. Yeah, you're, you're right on the money with the Federation, of especially the early season weirdness of TNG, where we just really couldn't have any conflict, and that's the engine of the story. <laughs> Gene, uh, Gene somehow missed that. So, you know, when you start getting into season three, you know, when the show grew the beard and through DS9, that's where they really overcame those self-imposed limitations. And, and some of the uh, best and most interesting episodes of uh, The Next Generation were when they changed history to get rid of the oh. assumptions about the Federation, like yesterday's Enterprise. I was just thinking about that, because have you seen the interview that Tarantino gave 
on some podcast, I can't remember the name, but they asked him, how would you approach a, a Star Trek movie if you were hired to direct Star Trek? And he said, I would do a 90-minute treatment of yesterday's Enterprise. Hmm. Yeah, for many of the reasons you said. And I recently rewatched it, you know, just last week, in fact. And yeah, for the audience's benefit, if any of you don't know, you know, spoiler alert, it's almost a 30-year-old episode. So if you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. Tough luck, yeah. Yeah, but um, it's almost what Abrams did in Star Trek 2009 because the timeline gets changed because due to some weapons malfunction, the Enterprise C, the Ambassador Class 1 that directly predates the Galaxy Class Enterprise D, that's the main ship of the show, comes into the future, uh, 22 years into the future, and that changes the past. So just in the blink of an eye, the Enterprise D goes from normal to going to more like the darker cinematic lighting and all the uniforms are militarized and everyone is wearing sidearms and like the families and kids are gone from the Enterprise and it's completely staffed with military personnel and they're on a specifically military mission because it turns out, um, with help of uh, Guinan, Wolfie Goldberg has got the sixth sense, she's the only one who knows this is wrong, you know, this is not how things should be, we're a ship of peace on mission of discovery, something went wonky here. And it turns out that 22 years before, when tensions between the Klingon Empire and the Federation were, were still pretty pretty taut, still, still pretty tense, the Enterprise-C intervened to help defend a group of Klingon ships from a Romulan attack, and failed. But... Because the Klingons honors everything, the fact that a Federation ship would even try to help and would go down fighting because uh, the, the Klingon ship and Enterprise C were lost with all hands. That thawed relations between the Klingon Empire and the Federation, and they were able to come to the table, and that was how the, the final piece got hammered out. Well, because the Enterprise C escaped into the future, it changed the timeline where the treaty was never signed. And the Klingons and the Federation have been at war for like 20 years in a hot war. And at one point, Picard even admits, we are losing. The Federation can't win this. You know, I have it from the Federation Council that we are going to surrender within six months. So they then face a choice. Well, do we add the Enterprise C like, to our fleet? Because we're so short on ships, we could basically just turn it into cannon fodder to throw it into the into the wood chipper of the, the Klingon fleet? Or do we send these people who've escaped certain death back into certain death in the past to try to prevent this whole timeline from happening? And so they uh, they, they have to face a moral choice. And um, JR, right, who, who died, I believe, early in season two, she's back because in this timeline she never died. And she comes to realize, like, Guinan tells her, you're, you're not supposed to be here. But she strikes up a, you know, a cute little puppy love romance with the weapons officer of the Enterprise C. And she ends up deciding to go back with them. And she's like, I don't belong here. You know, they, they need all the hands they can get. You know, I'll, I'll go back and help. And Tarantino's talking about how you could expand out that conflict. You could expand that... Romance story between Tasha and Enterprise C officer, 
And yeah, I agree. It could easily be expanded to a 90 minute treatment. So there are many other ways that you can make a world or make a, a barrel of tropes your own, but rationalizing errors, extrapolating uh, from what's already there to create new stuff around it and changing some of the assumptions of the world are three of uh, three really good ways to do it. And they will, if you're a writer and you're looking to do something like Cole and um, Anspach have done with Galaxy's Edge, you can keep those three things we've talked about in mind. Um, we are, gosh darn it, we are out of time. Um, and so I'm up against a hard deadline, so we've got to take off. But before we go, do either of you have any last words to say? John? Oh, thanks for the enlightening uh, chat. We'll have to chat about uh, him and the pro and stuff another week. No, that's fine. Oh, um, you, you had an announcement, Brian. Yeah, wanted to give a shout-out to my friend and editing client, Justin Knight, who's here in the chat. His new book, Praxis, which I edited, is available for pre-order on Amazon right now, and uh, it's got a lot of good early buzz. I know Nick Cole, which ties into this episode, gave it a blurb, as did friend of the show John Mollison and Russell Newquist. And uh, it's it's blue-collar science fiction. It is about a group of ordinary people thrust into an ordinary situation in space. So I've put the, the link in our chat here. Hopefully Daddy Warpig can uh, do the honors and plug it into the show notes, but uh, yeah, go pre-order it. Check it out. All right. Um, uh, we're out of time. We have to take off for today, but before we go, so to remind you, uh, if you want to participate in the chat, you can receive the announcements of when we're going live, and so uh, what you need to do in order to do that is double secret subscribe. Click on the subscribe button and then click on the little bell icon and tell them, yes, I really, really do want to hear about when uh, when GeekGab is going live so I can come and participate in the chat with uh, the other members of our unusually intelligent and attractive audience. Also, we are available on YouTube, youtube.com slash geekgab. We are available through the iTunes store. Just do a search for geekgab. We're available through the Google Play store. Just do a search for geekgab. And we are available through SoundCloud. Once again, just do a search for geekgab. We're available in all those places so you can download this show to your iDevice, to your Android device, or just listen to us uh, on the web. You can listen to us to a podcast. You can come to YouTube and be involved in the live show or watch us later, folks. We appreciate everyone who came and participated. We appreciate everyone who uh, asked questions and gave us feedback in the live chat as we were running through the show. And we are leaving you for today. We are out. We have other things we have to do, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.